down through history, God has used a lot of different things to wake up and to shake up tyrants. Uh, the psalm we sang earlier, Psalm 2, uh, prophesied that that is exactly what would happen from the time of Christ's resurrection to the end of history. But here was an example under Belshazzar, where he received a wake-up call in four different ways. We're going to be looking at uh, the wake-up uh, call that came through the handwriting on the wall, uh, through uh, the Queen Mother, through Daniel, and then finally through Cyrus taking over uh, Babylon. But this is something that you may think is an odd topic to be uh, preaching on, a wake-up call to tyrants, and yet it's a pervasive doctrine all through Scripture. You can find it uh, all through the Old Testament, not just in the Psalms, but you find it in the prophets, you find it in the Gospels uh, with uh, John the Baptist, you find it in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4 applies Psalm 2 as a wake-up call to uh, Pilate and to the Jewish leaders of that time. You find God miraculously uh, striking down Herod in a uh, Acts chapter 12 when he failed to give the glory to God. Uh, you find the book of Revelation dealing with it. So it's not an odd, small, obscure doctrine. This is something that is pervasive through Scripture. And if you study history providentially, you will see that exactly these types of things have been happening down through history. I just jotted down uh, some of my favorite examples, uh, the humbling of Henry IV, uh, emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, when uh, he uh, sought to be a tyrant over the church, was excommunicated and was brought to the place where he had to humble himself and confess his sins and was reinstated. Uh, the Reformation's miraculous and successful confrontation with King Charles or Emperor Charles IV, uh, Cromwell's confrontation with uh, King Charles I of England, and Knox's many and sometimes miraculous confrontations with Queen Mary. And you can perhaps uh, think of some others. If you know African history, which we had to study when we were out in Ethiopia, uh, there are a number of uh, very interesting confrontations with magistrates in the land of Africa. Uh, uh, starting with David Livingston and uh, using nationals as well as missionaries and sometimes not even using people, uh, just uh, confrontations where God directly uh, uh, imposed himself on these people. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole outline, but I do at least want to look at those two sides, uh, the miraculous and then God using ordinary means through people. And if you happen to be uh, have your discussion questions, I'm going to lump points A and uh, D together, the first and the last points this morning. In a sense, they were both miraculous, the handwriting on the wall, as well as Cyrus taking over that city. Uh, take a look at verses 30 to 31. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Now, earlier that evening, Belshazzar has been celebrating because he has not a worry in the world. Be uh, uh, not Bethlehem, what's the name? Babylon was invincible. They could not take it over. And if you remember the evidence from last week's sermon, you can see why they had such confidence. This city was surrounded by a 30-foot moat, and so anybody who tried to get across that would be shot from the towers. They couldn't build embankments against the wall, and the wall itself was 87 feet wide, according to ancient historians, was 350 feet tall. In fact, a lot of the modern scholars say that's impossible. They couldn't have been that big, but that's what the ancient documents uh, indicate. And at the time that Cyrus came to the walls of Babylon, 
They had 20 years' worth of supplies. They didn't have to grow another crop. You'd have to besiege them for 20 years before they'd be starved out. And so uh, people thought it is absolutely impossible to conquer Babylon. And yet, within a few hours, Cyrus has conquered the city. He's placed Darius on the throne. He's killed Belshazzar. The impossible has happened. And I think of the, uh, the Titanic. Uh, when it went out on its maiden journey... Uh, one of the deckhands was being interviewed by a newspaper editor, and he said this, God himself could not sink this ship. And yet God has done the impossible down through history to put man in his place. And you know what scares me when I see magistrates, when I see uh, some of the judges who openly defy God, openly defy God. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, In the same hour the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand. Uh, when God is pushed too far, his judgments can come very speedily. Now, I think in our congregation, we probably are frustrated in the opposite direction. We think God isn't speedy enough. If we were in Daniel's shoes, we'd say, Lord, how come you haven't come in judgment on this nation a lot sooner? Certainly it was quick here. Within an hour of that blasphemy, uh, he, uh, this, this judgment came. And yet Daniel was probably thinking, I've had to put up with this tyranny for 14 years of Belshazzar's reign. Why did God not come sooner? And we're not told. We don't know the reason why. But I think it's very important that we not begrudge God his patience with tyrants because it's his character that shows his patience to them that causes him to show patience with us. You know, we would not even be saved if it was not for the characteristic that causes God to be patient with tyrants. It is not something we should complain about. And God knows what he's doing. And his interventions uh, in history, and he controls from beginning to end all areas of history, but in the areas that are especially remarkable, uh, interventions of God, uh, you see that his timing was perfect. I think of the secret peace treaty that was made between the king of France and the king of Spain back in 1559. And in this secret treaty that nobody was supposed to find out about, uh, they were planning their strategy to completely wipe out the Protestant religion. Uh, they were going to stamp out all Protestant countries. They were declaring war, as it were, but they didn't want others to know what the real objective was. Well, uh, it did get leaked out, and William uh, of Orange found out about it. But the question came, God knew about that secret conspiracy way back then. Why did not God judge it at that time? God allowed the harassment, God allowed the persecution to come to purify and to strengthen the church. It served his purposes. And when his glory could be exalted in the greatest way, he intervened in a marvelous fashion. It seemed like Protestantism was going to receive a crushing blow when the Spain sent out the Spanish Armada and that God moved in the hearts of his people to pray God's curses down upon that satanic enterprise, which they did. And without lifting a sword, they watched God destroy the entire Spanish Armada, sank uh, to the bottom of the sea. And Queen Elizabeth credited God with that. She struck a medallion saying, God's breath, destroyed them. When you think of the miraculous intervention against the French on behalf of the English under uh, King Henry V, absolutely astonishing odds. 
I think it was something like a thousand French soldiers for every one English soldier, and it looked like they would be completely wiped out. And they gave their cause to the Lord and said, Lord, you alone can win the battle. They didn't even aim. They'd have these 500 archers throwing out their arrows at random, not even shooting, from what I understand. And it was just a massacre of the French, an absolute massacre. And King Henry V, from uh, at least the way Shakespeare uh, portrays it, says that anyone would be executed if they took the glory for the victory of that battle because God alone could receive the glory. Now, there are many stories like that where God alone can receive the glory, where he judges, he intervenes, he gives a wake-up call, and yet many Christians wonder, can this kind of stuff that happens in chapter 5 of Daniel happen in our day? And uh, I didn't ask uh, Russ to pick Psalm 2, but he picked Psalm 2, which again is a prophecy of what would happen from Christ's resurrection through to the end of time. And it says, yes, God does deal with tyrants. God does deal with kings. And in his perfect timing, his wrath is displayed and his glory and his kingdom is advanced. He ends that Psalm saying this, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. The whole point of that prophecy is talking about what is going to happen in the intervening uh, ages between Christ's resurrection and the end of history. Apparently, uh, Randall Terry is taking a group of pastors with him to China to pray down God's curses upon that nation, which has been so vicious in butchering Christians and praying God's protection upon Christians. And yet a lot of people are uncomfortable with that. They say, you know, that's not something that Christians ought to be doing. We ought not to be involved in that. And I sometimes wonder why. It's almost as if we see we're deists in this day where, yes, God intervenes in history in the past, but we get uncomfortable when people speak about God intervening on behalf of his people uh, today. And uh, what I want to assure you is that God continues to do that. God continues to do miracles. Many times Christians will read history, and there's a lot of historical accounts. You know, Constantine seeing the cross up in the sky. You read the modern history books, they say, well, that's just Constantinian propaganda. Probably never happened. Or you read in, in modern history of... Uh, uh, chiefs in Africa who had been persecuted Christians being confronted by the Lord and stopping their persecution. And there's skepticism on the part of people. There's nothing in this passage to say that God has to repeat this in the future, but there's nothing in the passage that says it is unique to that culture. And there are Psalm 2, there's many other passages indicating God does wake up and shake up tyrants all down through history. Now, point B, we've dealt with point A and D. Point B is somewhat a different switch in direction because sometimes God shakes up and wakes up tyrants through people who had no intention of doing that. It may be a, a congressman who gets uh, shaken up by reading a newspaper article or chatting with somebody over coffee. And I really see that as being the case with this queen mother here. She was probably trying to encourage her son not to be bringing a rebuke to her son, and yet her words ironically become a tremendous rebuke against him and influence him in ways that are providentially ordered. Verses 10 through 12, she basically testifies to the fact that Belshazzar has rejected everything good that Nebuchadnezzar stood for after he was converted. In these verses, she implies that he is foolishly removed the best man that Nebuchadnezzar had in his kingdom, Daniel. That this Daniel had been indwelt by the Holy Spirit 
and she maybe didn't even realize he's just finished blaspheming that Holy Spirit, just finished grieving that Holy Spirit. And so though she may not be aware of it, her words unwittingly stand as a rebuke to the king and influenced his actions. But I want to spend the, the remainder of my time with point C, Daniel's intentional effort at bringing a wake-up call to this king. There have been many godly men down through history who have taken on his mantle, men like John Knox uh, and his famous confrontations with uh, Mary, Queen of uh, Scotland at, not Hollywood, but Hollyrood, um, and uh, some tremendous things that happened there. Now, you may say, I'm no John Knox, you know, maybe I don't need to listen to this sermon. One of the unique things we have in America and the unique freedoms we have is that such uh, bringing of uh, letters and information to the king that was reserved just to a few in the past, any citizen can do and is welcome to do today. And so you might think of the following principles, and I'm going to give you several principles, as um, uh, principles we can apply to our letter writing to congressmen and our letter writing to the president or to others. But we can also pray that these principles would be uh, uh, lived out by leaders like Daniel that God has raised up in special positions in government. This first point is actually added to your outline. Realize that having a servant's heart will go a long ways toward making your criticism something that is acceptable. Um, there are a lot of people out there who are quite willing to criticize but are unwilling to lift a finger to help you to correct what is wrong. Uh, that happens in the church. It happens in the state. Some politicians are just sick of it. They get hundreds of thousands of people who are willing to criticize. Very few people who are willing to stand and give constructive help. And Daniel was not that, day, uh, that way. Daniel had showed himself to be a hardworking, loyal, and able servant who wanted to help, and it showed himself able to help down through the years. And so he had a balance of criticism, but with a servant's heart. Uh, Queen Mother recognizes that. Let's read verses 11 through 12. She says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, understanding, interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will give the interpretation." Now, I'll save an analysis of his character to a later time, uh, Lord willing. But what better credentials could you have to mandate a hearing? Daniel was qualified to help. He had had a record of helping the kings. Uh, he was willing to get his hands dirty and helping an administration. And so his criticism could not be waved off as the rantings of, a, of an armchair critic. Second principle, use respect. Verse 17 uh, he obeys the summons of a king. They're legitimate summons. And he treats this king as a king with respect. Um, I, I have run across people on at least two or three occasions who have justified their rudeness to magistrates based on John Knox's behavior. Let me assure you, if you've read much about John Knox, he was not rude. He respected authority he respected the office of the queen. There is no question about it. He did not respect her practices, and he publicly exposed those practices. 
and even went, when she invited him to come, went and boldly uh, showed her her errors to her face. We have been invited to share our opinions publicly with magistrates, but when we do so, let's make sure that we show respect. The third principle, don't let your confrontation be influenced by dependence upon government or by promises of something that might benefit you. I don't know how many times very good organizations have neutralized themselves by receiving contributions. I think National Right to Life uh, did that uh, with the, the large amount of money that they, that they received. And I think that is the reason they were silenced in certain directions. And they've been confronted about that, and hopefully they will change. But it's very easy for it to happen to any one of us. Belshazzar here offers remuneration. Perhaps his hope is that Daniel can somehow manipulate the gods and we can change this judgment or uh, Daniel can say something that will make it better. But Daniel is not to be bought. In verse 17, then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Give your rewards to another. It's amazing how easy it is to violate this principle. You can probably think just in the last 10 years of a number of congressmen who used to have a very faithful protest of what was happening, silencing their protest because of the need for advancement uh, or because of uh, threats uh, of demotion. It's hard enough to stand for truth, but when there are strings attached, it's even harder. I've had people sometimes ask me why I have not been involved in our denomination's retirement uh, program uh, or, or their medical uh, uh, plan or their insurance plan. And my reason has been I don't want any strings attached that would influence how I preach or would influence how I influence my denomination. Uh, one of the reasons why I'm glad that I don't know and don't want to know who tithes and how much people tithe in this congregation is I don't want my preaching influenced by that. And I'm very grateful that this congregation has never sought to put strings uh, to the preaching of the word. Fourth, be sure to challenge independent thinking. Now, this king definitely was independent. He did not uh, think that God had put him on the throne, and it was politically incorrect to be a, a Christian. It was definitely politically incorrect in verse 18 for Daniel to be saying, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. And he goes on to talk about how God uh, has been involved in Belshazzar's life. It was not politically uh, correct. And let me give you an example of why I say that. Nabonidus, his father, had to permanently leave uh, Babylon because he worshipped another pagan god, the moon god. He did not worship the sun god, uh, Marduk. Now, you have those kinds of dynamics going on. You know it's going to be politically incorrect for him to be totally wasting away everything that Babylon stands for religiously. And yet, in spite of that fact, Daniel is very bold to bring the name of God throughout this discourse to Belshazzar. And the reason for it is God is the foundation for politics. God has to be brought into the discourse. You know, when we as Christians write letters... Uh, it's many times we write it the same way that any secular conservative would write it. They'd never guess that we were Christians. Uh, there's no authority in, in our writings. And a lot of people say, yeah, but if I start sticking scripture in there, they're just going to completely write off. They're not going to listen to it at all. They're going to pitch it into the circular file. 
That may be true. But by failing to acknowledge God in your writings, by failing to include the scriptures, what you are doing is you're reinforcing their independent thinking by modeling to them that you too are independent in your thinking, that you do not have a basis for what you're criticizing them for. It's just your opinion against theirs. Fifth, challenge the notion that our actions do not have consequences. That's another thing that Daniel did. And I think this is an idea that is so rife in, in our society. Fornicators just think that they can get away with it. Uh, kids uh, in their uh, exams in school, when they cheat, they think they can get away. In fact, they know that they can get away with it. Uh, in the homes, they know they can get away with things because there are no consequences from their parents. And they think eventually there are no consequences from God. And we must make it unmistakably clear that ungodly political actions have negative consequences just as surely as private immoral living does. God guarantees that rebellion leads to calamity and that ruling justly leads to his blessing. Now, last week I uh, gave some quotations. I'm not going to do it. On, uh, from uh, some uh, people, uh, founding fathers, who made exactly that point, that a nation can only be blessed as we submit to God, and we will find God's judgments as we fail to do that. That's sort of what Daniel is doing here. He's appealing to history, and he's saying, look, you know that this is what happens when you rebel against God. And the reason Belshazzar knew that, Belshazzar was already grown up, he was already in government when Nebuchadnezzar uh, had... Um, uh, written that that chapter 4 of Daniel. And so let's go ahead and read chapter 5, verses 20 through 21, which is a description of the consequences that God brought into prideful uh, Nebuchadnezzar's life. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Consequences. Consequences. Now, we don't know what the consequences will be for the actions that people have taken in our society, and we shouldn't predict those. But we can, with assurance, say there will always be guaranteed negative consequences when people reject God's moral law, just as surely as there are negative consequences when we neglect the laws of God in physics. You know, you jump off a cliff, and there are going to be consequences to that. Sixth, affirm that all men stand beneath the reign of King Jesus and have no authority except the authority that comes from Christ. Now people say, well, is that true in the New Testament? Yeah, you read Christ's words to Pilate. He said, you could have no authority over me except it was given you from above. You look at the words of John the Baptist. He made it very clear that magistrates are accountable to God. And I think, again, Christians are far too timid in this area. Uh, we... Um, we really need to go back to some of the roots that we looked at uh, in the videotape in Sunday school. Look at the last clause there in verse 21. That judgment came on Nebuchadnezzar, it says, till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. The whole point of uh, that word tekel, in verse 27, is that God judges and he holds rulers accountable. They are measured in the balances. And in terms of a wake-up call, simply stating your opinion does not cut the mustard. 
See, politicians get hundreds of thousands of people's opinions. And their opinion is just as good as anybody else's opinion because there's no authority there. If we don't bring the opinion of Almighty God into the equation, uh, we're, 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 we're really not going to be effective. And unless we affirm that they are answerable to God and His Word, uh, we will not be effective. Challenge them to realize their authority is a derivative authority from God to whom they are accountable. Seventh, be specific in what behavior is wrong. Uh, we can't just criticize in general. There needs to be a specificity. And Daniel here specifies four or five things that the king was doing wrong. Pride, rebellion against God's lordship, overstating uh, state jurisdiction, blasphemy and drinking from temple vessels, and idolatry. Look at verse 23. You have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. So be specific in identifying wrong. Eighth, believe and affirm the last words of that verse that I just read, that we live and move and have our being in God. I think that has two benefits. It helps to remove the fear of man from us when we realize they couldn't even persecute us unless God allowed them to do so. But it also might help them to be a little bit more careful if they realize the greatness of God. I think a lot of people, the education they've had, all they've been taught is evolution, and any God that they might believe in is a very small God. You look at Belshazzar, his was a very small God, a God you could manipulate. And the God of creation is the God that, that Daniel presents to him. He says, the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have glorified. And I think that's a rebuke to much of the wimpy, uh, Christian political action uh, that we have. We act as if it's okay for politicians to be neutral. And how could politicians be neutral if their very breath is held in God's hand? That's how dependent they are. Ninth, give them the Bible. And this is the last point. Give them the Bible. Now, Daniel gives them the words that are up on the wall there, but it was God's word. And it is an objective standard that transcends our private subjective feelings and opinions. It was pretty hard for this king to argue about there being writing on the wall. And uh, even though he may have disagreed with it and not liked it and maybe disobeyed it, Daniel gave it to him anyway. And I think without God's word, it's pretty hard to sustain a successful wake-up call in a day and age when people have been, been uh, um, rationalizing uh, the, the truth away. Take a look at verse 22 where it appears that Belshazzar has done exactly that. It says, But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. His conscience was there, but it had been hardened. He knew the truth, but he had suppressed the truth. And that, again, was the reason for the need for the wake-up call and the need for the objective testimony of Scripture. I believe that America needs a wake-up call every bit as much as Belshazzar did, and it's my hope it would not be in terms of the judgment that was brought through Cyrus, but rather that there would be a listening to, a heeding 
of the Word of God as God raises up leaders. And I think we are in a position where we can pray that God would raise up leaders who would bring them to a place of acknowledging their wrong and turn our country around. But let's pray and pray hard in this uh, uh, Sunday when we're dealing with uh, this coming weekend, tomorrow with Memorial Day. Pray that our nation would come back to biblical roots and that God would have its, His way with our nation. Let's pray.